Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. It's wonderful to have you back, and if you've not visited us before, I hope you have a really wonderful time. In this episode, as we normally do, first there'll be the story, and then the story will be followed by some information about the story, how it came about, some of the folklore and the food and food history in the story. So, let me tell you what our story is about, or at least the title of our story. It is The Witch and the Horse Devil. It's a Turkish folk tale, which I've adapted from a couple of different sources, which we'll talk about after the story. I hope you enjoy. If you're listening comfortably, then I'll begin. Once there was, and once there was not, a Padisha who had three daughters. One was the oldest, one was the youngest, and one was in the middle. Time passed, and they saw that the Padisha had no plans to get them married. Well, the three daughters said, this will not do. So they called their servant, and they said, bring us three watermelons. One overripe, one ripe, and one underripe. All right, said the servant, and bought three watermelons. The eldest daughter said, now, you take these out to our father. The watermelons were taken to the Padisha. What's this, he asked. Open them up and see, said the servant. They cut the watermelons one by one. They cut the first one and saw that it was overripe. They cut the second one and it was just right. They cut the third one and it was underripe. What does all this mean, said the Patricia? I I don't understand what this means. Would you allow me to explain, said the servant. It's quite a long story. Let's make it a shorter story. They want to get married. Oh. All right, said the Patricia, if that's husbands that they want, you send out cries out to everyone to tell everyone, rich or poor, noble or not, to come and come pass in front of my balcony. I will give a ball to each of my daughters, and they may choose whichever one they want and throw the ball at him. I'll marry them to the men they want. In the morning, he had three golden balls made for them. The town cries went out calling, and everyone, rich or poor, noble or not, high officials, low officials, everyone got dressed up and started parading in front of the palace. The oldest girl threw her ball to the son of the vizier. The middle one threw hers to the son of the wealthiest merchant in town. The youngest daughter threw her ball, and it hit a horse. Oh, look, it didn't work, they said. So they brought the ball back and she threw it again. And it hit the horse again. She tried a third time, and again, it hit the horse. Well, that's it, says the Patricia, that decides it. It is a real pity for my youngest. But anything, he got everything ready for his other daughter's weddings. When it came to the youngest, he got everything ready. But there wasn't any bridegroom around except a horse. In the evening, when they were shown into a room, it was like a stable. Well... What else for a horse, said the Padisha. Only in the die time, however, had the youngest sister a horse for her husband and a stable for a dwelling. By night the stable was transformed into a rose garden lit by tiny flickering candles and the horse turned into a handsome young man. There they lived in utmost felicity, no one except themselves knowing their secret. However, one day she was sitting talking to her horse husband and he said, Look, You've got to remember not to say anything about me to your sisters. If you do, all this will be spoiled and you will lose me. Let me say it as a horse in the daytime, or you will lose me. You see, he was a witch's son. 
Time passed for a while, and her sisters kept on making fun of her. What happened when you got married? All you got was a horse. We're having so much fun with our husbands. But all you have is a horse who comes clip-plop, clip-plop, clip-plop home in the evening. Now, it came to pass that Padisha arranged a tournament in the courtyard of the palace, and the bravest of all the knights who took part therein were the husbands of the monarch's eldest daughters. Look, this they said to the sister of the stable, our husbands are like lions. See how beautifully they throw their lances. Where's your husband? At this, the horse, who had overheard their conversation, shook himself, changed into human form, mounted a steed, and, begging his wife again not to reveal his identity, he plunged into the fray. He overcame all the combatants, unhorsed his brothers-in-law, then vanished as completely as though he'd never been there. Next day, the tournament was continued, and the elder sisters treated the youngest with scorn and contempt. But again, our unknown hero appeared, struck down all his opponents, and vanished as before. On the third day, the horse knight said to his wife, If at any time I am in danger, or you are in need of help, burn these three hairs, and wherever you may be, I will come to you. Then he hastened to the tournament and fought again with his brothers-in-law. His prowess evoked universal admiration. Even his sisters-in-law could not withhold a tribute of praise. But they were so horrid to their sister and said, See, these knights understand the tournament. They're not like your horse husband. The poor woman, just she couldn't deal with it any more. She couldn't longer stop answer that the beautiful, handsome and valiant knight was her husband. But even as she turned to point him out, he vanished. This reminded her that he had warned her never to divulge the secret. Overcome with remorse, she awaited eagerly his return to the stable. But in vain, neither horse nor man came, neither roses nor garden were to be hers that night. The next morning she went to her father, for her father had told her about it, and she said, If you love me, father, get me a pair of iron shoes and an iron staff, and I shall go look for him. I shall walk until I find him. You must be crazy, said her father. He's a devil, a horse devil. You'll never find him. He's the son of a witch. He is, said the girl. But I was happy with my husband, and I shall look for him until I find him, or until I die. They couldn't make her listen to reason. So they gave her a pair of iron shoes and an iron staff and a bag full of gold. The Padisha said, May your road be open and she started she went and went and went six months and one summer over the rivers and over the hills and then more six months and one winter straight over the rivers and straight over the hills she was so tired she sank under the tree at the bottom of a mountain and lifted the sole of her iron shoe and saw there was a hole in it just think she said iron shoes so worn that they have holes. As she sat there, trying to decide what to do next, looking at her shoes, a horse ran up to her and shook itself, and there was her husband. Oh, you came, she said. You don't know what I have suffered and how I have walked, and I cannot bear it any longer. The problem is, he said, you have reached the mountain where I live. But it is also the mountain where my mother lives, and if she sees us now, she will separate us immediately. This mountain is our home, and where we hide if she finds a human on it. She began to cry, and he enfolded her in his arms. 
She was terrified, and grieving bitterly that she no sooner had she found her husband that she must lose him again. The devil's son pitied her, gave her a light blow, and changed her into an apple, which he put upon a shelf. Shrieking loudly, the witch flew down from the mountain, crying she could smell human flesh, and that human flesh she must have. The horse devil's father walked in then. He sniffed, and he sniffed, and he sniffed, and he said, Woman, I smell human flesh in this house. The witch said, Well, your son denies it. There's no human flesh here. It must be something in your teeth. Pick it out and eat it. And he did pick something out of his teeth and eat it. And then they all sat down and drank. His mother began insisting again. She said, there's definitely human flesh in this house now. I can smell it. And your father insists that there's no more about his person. He tried to deny it and she refused to believe him. Okay, if you will swear on this egg to do it no harm, I will show you what I have hidden said the young man. The witch accordingly promised, whereupon her son gave the apple a light touch, and the beautiful maiden appeared. Behold, my wife, he said. His mother, the witch, said nothing, but set her daughter-in-law some simple tasks and went back to her work. For a few days, her husband and wife were allowed to live in peace, but his mother was only waiting until her son went away from home to wreak her vengeance on his wife. At last she found an opportunity. Sweep and don't sweep, she commanded the maiden, and went away. Poor girl was perplexed to know what she must sweep and what not sweep. Recollecting the herd, she took one and put it. Instantly her husband appeared, and she told him her difficulty. He explained that she must sweep the room and not sweep the courtyard. The maiden acted accordingly. Towards the evening, the witch mother-in-law came in and asked whether the work was done. I have swept and not swept, answered her daughter-in-law. You deceitful thing, scolded the old woman. You have not thought that out for yourself. My son certainly taught you. Next day... The old witch came again and gave the maiden three bowls, which she ordered her to fill with her tears. You should be good at it, she said. You never seem to stop crying. The maid wept, and she wept, and she wept continually, but failed, even though she was very good at crying, to fill even one of the vessels. In her difficulty, she burnt her second hair, whereupon her husband appeared and advised her to peel the bowls with water and add a quantity of salt thereto. This the maiden did, and when the old woman came home in the evening, she was shown the three vessels duly filled. You cunning creature, this is not your own work, and my son shall not cheat me again. On the third day, the old woman decided to give her the task she thought there was no chance her daughter-in-law would ever manage to do, and told her, Tomorrow is baking day, but I have lent my griddle to my sister. So you will need to go and fetch it from her, my sister's house. The old witch left and the girl began to cry and then stopped crying, mostly because she spent quite a lot of the day before crying and her eyes were sore. So she spoke out loud. I've got one hair left and she burnt it in the fire and her husband appeared. I'm so sorry, she said. I've been told to go to your aunt's house to fetch the griddle. But I don't know where it is, and I'm afraid they'll be trapped on the way. Ah, don't worry, he said. 
It's easy. This is what you need to do. When you arrive at my aunt's house, close the open door that you will see and open the closed door. There'll be a dog with grass in front of him behind that door and then a horse with meat in front of him. Take the grass from the dog and give it to the horse and take the meat from the horse and give it to the dog. Then run in fast while no one sees you and get the griddle from behind the door and come straight back. All right, she said, and followed his instructions to the letter. As she arrived, she closed the open door and opened the closed door. There was a heap of grass in front of the dog and a heap of meat in front of the horse. She gave the meat to the dog and the grass to the horse. Then she grabbed the griddle from behind the door. But when she was running away, the aunt saw her and screamed, Catch her, you dog! The dog said, hmm, Why should I? All this time I had a heap of grass before me. Does a dog eat grass? Why should I catch her? You, horse, catch her, screamed the aunt. No, no I don't think so. Does a horse eat meat? She gave me grass. Door, you catch her, shouted the aunt. No, all my life I've lived closed and she opened me. You, other door, you catch her, screamed the aunt. And the other door said, no, why should I catch her? All the time I stood open and she closed me. I won't catch her. So the girl escaped with the griddle and brought it home to the witch's house. The witch guessed her son had helped her daughter-in-law she couldn't really do anything about it. However, on the following day, she ordered her daughter-in-law to make a pancake. And although the maiden looked everywhere, and I mean everywhere, not a single ingredient for the purpose could she find. This time she could expect no help, for she'd burned her last hair. The young man, however, was suspicious of his mother's wicked intentions and returned home unexpectedly to his wife and seeing in her grief he suggested that they should flee. My mother will not rest until she has brought about your ruin, he said. Let us escape before she returns. So they went together out into the wide world. In the evening the witch came home and saw that both her daughter-in-law and son were missing. Those evil wretches have abandoned me, she said. She didn't really think that much about her husband as company. While she was debating what to do, the princess and her horse husband leant as far as they could. They went as far as six months of the summer and six months as a winter. They went straight over rivers and over hills and they turned and looked back and they could see his father, the ogre, behind them. Straight away, the horse husband turned and stopped with his wife. He turned her into a bathing house and he turned himself into a bath attendant and stood in front of the door. His father came up and inquired of him whether he had seen a young man and a maiden. I'm just warming the bath, he said. There's no one in. If you don't believe me, go in and see for yourself. The ogre decided to be thorough, did poke his head round the door, realised he could see nothing and headed on back to his wife to tell her that he couldn't find them. All there was was a bathhouse and an attendant. He was very stupid, he told his wife. I couldn't get anything out of him. You were even more stupid, said the witch, not to recognise that the bath house was your daughter-in-law and the bath attendant was your son. So, giving up on him, she called her sister and sent her after the fugitives. The horse devil looked back, saw his aunt coming towards them in a bowl, wrapped around with snakes. 
touched his wife gently, and she became a spring, and he himself stood beside the spring and drew water. The witch came up and asked whether she had seen anything of a youth and a maiden. This spring has excellent drinking water. The fellow answered with, a, with an air of simplicity. His aunt, not recognising him, and thinking he was too stupid to understand her questions, hurried back to her sister, with the intelligence that she couldn't see anything of the missing couple. The witch inquired whether she had seen anyone on the way. Just a young man drawing water from a spring, was the answer. That young man was my son, exclaimed the witch in a great rage, and the spring was his wife. I see I'm going to have to go myself. So she stepped into the bowl, made a whip out of snakes, and set off. Looking back, the young man, the horse devil himself, saw his mother was coming. Touching his wife gently, he turned her into a tree, and himself into a snake coiled around it. The witch, however, was not fooled. She knew them, and she would have torn that tree to pieces if she could have done so without harming her son. So she said to the snake, My son, at least show me the little finger of your maiden, and I will leave you in peace. The son saw the only way to get rid of his mother was to do as he asked. She asked, therefore allowed one of the maid's fingers to become visible, and his mother devoured it, and then vanished. And another gentle touch from her husband, the maiden resumed her human form, and the two went home to her father, the Padisha. The talisman that his mother had given him, having been destroyed in their flight, the young man became mortal, and was no longer a devil, and his witch mother had no more power over him. The Padisha rejoiced in the return of his lost children. Their marriage was again celebrated with great pomp, and because... They were his favourites. After the Patricia died, they reigned in his stead. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale. And I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. So, what did you think of our tale? I loved it. Well, it has some problems, I know, but it has so much energy. Although I do feel our horse devil hero is a bit of less opaque in his explanations, especially when you consider how scary his mum and his dad and his auntie are. This tale has strong elements of two tale types. ATU425B, Son of the Witch, which is previously the disenchanted husband, the witch's tasks, and ATU425A, Animal as Bridegroom, which includes famous tales like East of the Sun and West of the Moon. The husband in the first tale type doesn't have to be in the form of an enchanted animal, but does need to have a relative of the groom who stands in the way of happiness of the couple. This is usually his mother, as she is often a witch, or a sorceress, an ogre, or a troll. She usually sets impossible tasks for the bride, and the groom appears to help her. Dropping in briefly. His mother usually knows that he's helping, but doesn't actually do anything about it until the couple make a break for it. Some scholars believe that this isn't a true example of the tale type if the bride doesn't have to gain a casket from an even more fearsome faith more family member as the last task. But this seems to be a bit too strict a definition for me. Also, our tale doesn't contain an extra bride or bribing with gifts, so ATU45B is probably the winner here, even though the hero is a horse 50% of the time. The second tale type the story falls into doesn't necessarily have to have tasks, and the fearsome female in these tales doesn't have to be related to the hero. She does, however, often take him prisoner by enchantment, 
and wants her to marry his daughter. Him to marry her daughter, sorry. The heroine of the tale has to win opportunities to remind the hero who she is, usually by exchanging magical objects in exchange for a night spent in his company. The heroes of these tales are usually in animal form during the day and human form at night and disappears at the point which the heroine does the thing her bridegroom warns her she should never do. We discussed the connection between these tales and the Cupid and Psyche myth in my previous episode, The King of Love, and this tale has all the necessary elements. The envious sisters pop up here as well. Pinto Smelto, another earlier episode, is also Search for Lost Husband tale, but it's one of the more rare types, which is ATU45 itself. This is where the maiden crafts her husband out of raw materials, and he becomes alive bearing various fruits. He's then lusted after by a foreign queen and stolen. The maiden then has to exchange magical items to get the chance to remind her obvious love of who she is, oblivious love of who she is in ATU 425A. This is a more direct tale than ours, where the hero has to protect her heroine from his mother, as well as being an animal bridegroom. There are lots of variants of these tales from all over the world. Around 1,500 variants of tale type ATU45 and its subtypes have been collected from Europe, Asia, Africa and North America, with 580 of those variants appearing across six European countries, Sweden, Norway, Ireland, Germany, France and Italy. No one can agree exactly where the tales originated. Even the more simple ATU45 is disputed over between Italy and Greece. There's also much disagreement about whether the tales travelled east to west or west to east, but it's likely at least that the variants that appeared in North America were more likely transported over from Europe. We do know, however, that this tale is adapted from two tales that were collected from the oral tradition of what is now Turkey. This tale in particular, as it is. One tale appears in 44 Turkish fairy tales, collected and translated by Dr Ignaz Kunos, and another from the Archive of the Turkish Oral Narrative, Southwest Collection, which was collected in the 1950s. Turkish storytelling was predominantly in the oral tradition as the rate of literacy remained below 10% until, sorry, the rate of literacy remained below 10% until the mid-1920s. The role of the travelling storyteller was vital in spreading tales. These storytellers, known as medas, were trained in a master and apprenticeship arrangement and they would perform in public venues such as coffee houses and would use various everyday objects as props in their stories. They were even honoured at court and various rulers had their own storytellers. Traditional Turkish stories have many fantastical elements, partly due to the rich background they have to draw from, due to their tumultuous history and geographical position as the crossroads of routes between Europe and Asia. They are not the stories of A Thousand and One Nights, although some do feature. They have a thriving life and culture of their own. The fantastic creatures like our horse devil are one of countless magical creatures. Devil in this instance is more that of a djinn, or djinn, rather than the devil of European tradition. I love this quote. Turkish fairy tales are as crystal, reflecting the sun's rays in a thousand dazzling colours, clear as a cloudless sky and transparent like the dew upon a budding rose. In short, Turkish fairy tales are not the stories of the thousand and one nights, but of the thousand and one days. Ignat Kunas. There are some really wonderful collections of Turkish folk tales, some of which appear in my further reading section, and I encourage you to track down some others yourself. I can't believe I've got this far without discussing food, but we have reached that time. You may have guessed from the tale, and possibly from the time of year, that it's pancakes. If you did, clever you and well spotted. Imagine not having the ingredients for pancakes. Also, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, and Owen in Britain, you may struggle to get at least one of the essentials due to Shrove Tuesday panic buying. There'll be more of that later when we look at folklore. Pancakes have been around for a long time, although not necessarily recognisable in the form we recognise them as today. 
we're probably better start with a definition of pancake. Differentiate it from lots of similar items. Firstly, it must be made from a batter, not a dough, even if the ingredients are identical. Secondly, it should be cooked on a pan or a griddle over a heat source, not in an oven. Thirdly, it needs a fairly substantial carbohydrate element to make a natural pancake. Otherwise, we could count omelets, which definitely aren't pancakes. So, back to pancake history. We're pretty sure that the pancakes we know and love today and would recognise as pancakes, see earlier definition, in Europe at least date from the 13th century, although people have been cooking something that may have been pancakes, omelettes, fritters, flatbreads since the ancient Romans and Apicius. We don't have enough information to tell exactly which, as often the cooking method will define the product. The difference between pancakes and fritters is very slight, really. Fritters and pancakes can have a very similar recipe, but one is cooked in deep oil, whereas the other is cooked on a griddle. Sometimes it can still be tricky. I, for example, make courgette and feta fritters, which I shallow fry, which probably makes them more pancakes than fritters, but who cares when they taste that good? Anyway, history of pancakes, and by what I mean is a European pancake, sort of like French crepe, but sometimes a little thick. There are so much more pancake history from across the globe and through time, but due to my limited time and resources, I've concentrated on essentially the British pancake. That's not to say American-style pancakes or other delicious pancakes, sweet and savoury, from other parts of the world aren't wonderful, but they're a different animal. Different pancake, anyway. References to pancakes date back to the 13th century, and recipes start appearing in books from the very late 16th century and early 17th century. They become increasingly popular in the 18th century, appearing in Hannah Glass's famous work, among many others. I mean, she pinched them pretty much wholesale from the whole jewels of a woman from 1737, but who's counting? Some recipes are rich with cream and spices, but some contain milk instead of cream, although they are still spiced. This was also true of pancakes that were served to working people to an extent, though. William Ellis writes in The Country Housewife's Family Companion at length, and it is at length, several pages, on how useful they are to bulk out other foods for labourers and encourages the use of ginger as part of the recipe for the plainer pancake. He also suggests the use of water when milk isn't available, as the pancakes will still be filling. Pancakes also appear in Alexis Sawyer's Shilling Cookery for the People and in Frank Catelli's A Plain Cookery Book for the Working Classes, as they're good for filling out the diet of the urban poor too. Spices have long since left by this point, and the recipes are very similar to those we see today. I'd also like to take the time to reference a charming recipe for snow pancakes in Dorothy Hartley's Food in England, which does add a lovely touch of whimsy. So, that is a very short history of pancakes from ancient Rome to the present day. It's partly short because I also promised you folklore, and there's quite a lot of that. Well, there is around Shrove Tuesday anyway. We should probably start properly with the idea that pancakes are made on Shrove Tuesday to use up ingredients that can't be eaten in Lent. This is true to an extent. Both Collet Monday and Shrove Tuesday were days to use up your supplies. Most people don't know of Collet Monday anymore, but it was the day to use up any remaining overwintered bacon in the form of thick steaks, thick gammon, and egg. It was very much the opposite of Meatless Monday, and the remaining fat from the bacon was used to fry pancakes on the Tuesday. Shrove Tuesday actually comes from the need to shrive or confess before the start of Lent, and the day eventually took its name from this. However, post-Reformation England, it gradually lost its religious meaning as confession was not part of the new Protestant church. However, the need to give up things for Lent did remain, although Collet Monday was definitely a casualty of the Protestant insistence on eating meat in Lent. Pancakes and Pancake Day remained, though, as they retained that party and celebration feeling before the abstinence of Lent. Apprentices were often given the day off, and traditionally also made no pancakes. Even Shakespeare connected the day with pancakes and all's well that ends well. As fit as ten groats is for the hand of an attorney, as your French crown for your taffety punk, as Tibbs rush for Tom's forefinger, as a pancake for Shrove Tuesday, 
and Morris from May Day, as the nail to his hole, the cuckold to his horn, as the scolding queen to a wrangling knave, as the nun's lip to the friar's mouth, nay, as the pudding to his skin. There is even a lady's pancake based in Aldi in Buckinghamshire on Shrove Tuesday, where you have to flip the pancake as you run, which has been running every year since 1445, with only a short lapse during World War II. No one can confirm the origin of the race. One tale tells of a stressed-out housewife who heard the church bells and dashed off to attend with her frying pan and pancake in tow, and this remains the most popular origin story for the tradition. However, another tale suggests that giving pancakes was a bribe to get the ringer or sexton to ring the bell early to start the day's festivities, as it used to be a half-day holiday. Shrove Tuesday definitely used to be a lot more fun than it is today, and it's still fun because we have pancakes, but then they had pancakes and much more revelry, similar to that around the Lord of Misrule and Twelfth Night. There was a very long rhyming poem written by Neocor Georgius, a Protestant reformer, which highlights the excesses of pieces of pork, and puddings, games, heavy drinking, gambling with cards and dice, running around the streets naked. Which must have been quite chilly in February. He is clearly also disgusted by the amount of dressing up as animals in bare skins, playing in the street, as well as a little cross-dressing. He in particular refers to wanton wenches dressed like men, which I think might be an excellent team name for any sport you care to think of, or pub quiz, when I come to think about it. Pancakes are also mentioned. There are a few non-pancake-related items of folklore for Pancake Day or Shrove Tuesday. One, that you should use this day to sow onion seeds so that they grow very big. Two, that you should sow parsley and lettuce seed on this day to ensure they're very green. The third one's weather-related. Thunder on Shrove Tuesday indicates storms to come and plenty ahead in the harvest. Sunshine means there'll be sun on every day in Lent. Wind on the same night, however, indicates a death amongst learned people and the death of much fish in the following summer. No, I don't know about that last one either. It suggests further questions at the very least. I suppose all that's left now is to provide you with a pancake recipe. And I'm going to link you to my favourite recipe since 2018. Previously I used one from the BBC Good Food website. The one I use now is this one from Olivia Potts, which is perfect to make on pancake day. Squeeze over lemon juice, sprinkle with sugar and roll up any standing over the cooker, making the next one. Sadly, the original link no longer works, so I've had to link to the web archive version. There are also ideas of alternative toppings if lemon and sugar doesn't float your boat. Olivia is a fantastic food writer, and her book about her experiences of grief and learning to cook should be on everyone's list. It was the winner of the Fortnum and Mason's Debut Food Book Award, and there are links to it, as there are to the recipe, in the show notes. And with that, well, I have to say I think we've probably reached the end of another episode of Folklore Food and Fairy Tales. But before I go, I would just like to tell you about an event that the Folklore Podcast and Archive is running. It's running on the weekend of the 19th to 20th of March. It's a two-day online conference on the theme of witchcraft with some of the world's leading experts, practitioners and performers. It's delivered via Zoom with catch-up video access available to ticket holders after the event to make sure you don't miss a minute. Ticket prices give access to the whole weekend. All ticket holders will be entered into a free prize draw to win a DVD box set of Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, courtesy of the director. All presentations will include a chance to ask questions to the speakers. The guests that are already confirmed are Professor Ronald Hutton, Historical Studies from the University of Bristol, Professor Marion Gibson, Professor of Magical and Renaissance Literature, University of Exeter, Incubus Succubus, Deborah Hyde, a cultural anthropologist and media presenter, Sid Moore, author of the Essex Witch Museum series, 
Gemma Garwood, she's a performance artist. Witches of Scotland will be discussing their campaign for justice for Scottish witches and Dorian Volante Foundation. Dr Marco Vittone will discuss the collection of magical artefacts and works of the organisation. There are more speakers who will be announced in the next few days. If you'd like to go or are interested in finding out more information, I will put the link in my show notes. Or if you go to the Folklore Podcast, you should be able to find it that way as well. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. <laughs>